All right, as I noted, um, we've been looking at psalms that kind of amplify and help us understand that psalm that we looked at, Psalm 27, where David had expressed that one desire to dwell in God's house, to, to see his beauty, to know him and to know him well, and the barriers to that and things that go, go with that. Um, now as we kind of transition out of that, there is tied to that. If we're dwelling in God's house, there is that idea that God is our refuge. God is our protector. He keeps us and, and watches over us. And that is uh, an idea that we'll see in some of the Psalms in the coming weeks. And then hopefully in very stark uh, reality, uh, as we look at the Psalms that look forward to the work of Christ as we build towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So we'll begin that this morning by looking at Psalm 84, a psalm uh, written by, or possibly written for, but in all likelihood, written by uh, the sons of Korah. And we'll talk about who they are and uh, the context, I think, of this psalm as we get into it. Let me read the psalm for us, 12 verses, Psalm 84, the very word of the living God. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrows find a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So ends again the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. As we come before it this morning, let me pray for us. O Lord God of hosts, we come before you, ask your blessing upon this time when we hear you speak to us through your word. May that be true for each of us this morning. And may you fulfill the promise that you've made, that your word goes out, does not return to you void. May it accomplish what you purpose for it and be successful in the things for which you are sending it this morning. For us, we ask that you would fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit so that our eyes may be open and our ears might be open to see and hear the things that you would have us learn. Make your word, we ask, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, All of this, once again, we ask in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.
Well, in the beginning, God created. And as we read through the story of creation in Genesis 1 and 2, we come to the creation of man as the pinnacle of that creation. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we're told that the Lord God took the man that he had made. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. From the very, very beginning of our creation, we were made to work. We were created to work. Now, what I don't know for sure, because Scripture doesn't tell us, although Adam was pretty joyful in saying when he got Eve to help him, Scripture doesn't tell us explicitly, but I'm inclined to believe that singing while we work is something that goes back to the very earliest days of our existence. Man has sung songs while working, and work songs, well, they help us pass the time to ignore the drudgery, maybe, of what we're doing, or to teach ourselves, or to teach each other. Work songs uh, are something we find in nearly every culture throughout the earth. We've got simpler trite examples that are reflected in in, uh, some Disney movies. The dwarfs, what do they sing as they go off to the mines? Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. A work song. Later on, Snow White is encouraging them to clean up their house, which they don't like to do. You know, whistle while you work. Mary Poppins sings a song to the Banks children who don't want to clean up their room. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. Singing helps the work go easier. There's a famous song, a popular jazz song, the work song, recorded by many, uh, written by Nat Adderley, Cannonball Adderley's brother. Still recorded, still played today, still famous, the work song, celebrating music while we work. Or think of the history of spirituals. We are pretty sure that the first spirituals were written while the slaves were out in the fields, toiling, and laboring, songs that they wrote to encourage themselves in their work, to give a, their work, to give a rhythm to their work, but also to teach each other and to celebrate the things that they knew to be true from Scripture and their hopes and dreams of freedom. Go find a, a recording of the spirituals. They are absolutely fantastic. So work songs are a part of who we are as human beings. And even today, walk into almost any workplace or look at people working in their yards or, or craftsmen working or laborers working out in, the, out in the open. It's so common nowadays. What do you see? The earbuds in their ears listening to music while they work. It's something that's common for us. Sing a song, listen to music while we work. And I bring up all this because when I look at Psalm 84, and you see it in the title of the sermon, to me, this is a work song. As much as anything else, Psalm 84 is a work song. Not often approached that way when you look in the commentaries and and whatnot. People tend to look at the structure of the psalm, the outline, those kinds of things. Very common to focus on the three blessings in the psalm. I do want to look at those this morning. Two well-known preachers in our circles, James Boyce and Ligon Duncan, both talk about the origin of this song as as a doorkeeper's song, the song of the sons of Korah. But then in the body of their sermon, they focus on the three blessings. They kind of tell the neat story, but then focus on the blessings and not uh, 
the background, the context. Again, others look at structures or find other emphases. Uh, there are some wonderful, famous, well-known verses in here. My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord in, so, in verse 2. Verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. There's a nice little praise song uh, that fits with that. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. This is a well-known psalm, and there are things that are appropriate to, to focus on and look at. But again, for me, it leaves out what I think is a fundamental, essential characteristic of this psalm, and that's the context of it. Who wrote it, and why do they write it? And I think they wrote it as a work song, in, in essence. It's written by, I think, some would say maybe for, but I think the preposition should be by, written by the sons of Korah. There is a band called the Sons of Korah today, but it wasn't written by them. This is a little bit older. Who are the sons of Korah? They wrote many of the Psalms. Well, their job in ancient Israel was to be the gatekeepers, to be the guards for the temple and the temple complex. And I think we can learn some things by looking at this psalm through their eyes, if you would, through their perspective. And I want to do that this morning. I do want to look at the blessings. We'll look at the blessings first, and I want to talk about those briefly. But then I want to look at the psalm from the perspective of the Korahites, the sons of Korah, the workers by whom this song was written, and see their love for their calling as doorkeepers in the house of God. All right, so let's start with the blessings. Three blessings in the psalm found in verses 4, 5, and 12. Blessings that are, uh, are thought to summarize the different sections of the psalm, depending on how you divide it up. Uh, the blessing in verse 4 summarizes the first four verses. The blessing in verse 5 is said to summarize verses 5 to 9. And then the blessing at the end in verse 12 is thought to summarize verses 10 to 12. And I think that's a fine and a wonderful way to look at it. Uh, and very helpful in studying the psalm and learning from it. Don't want to ignore it, so let's talk about those blessings here briefly this morning. The first in verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. We've been talking about this for a long time, so this should bring to mind pretty readily, and many commentators bring this up, there's a tie here to Psalm 27, verse 4. David has that one desire, to dwell in the house of God. Well, here it is expressed again in terms of a blessing. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. To live with God, to be with God, to be part of God's household, part of his family, is considered a great blessing. Now think about what that implies. To be able to live with God, to be part of his household, implies that we are in a right and proper relationship with him. That we have a right to be members in his household and to live and dwell therein. What that meant for ancient Israel was, well, we have to be obedient to the law. We have to do what the law tells us to do. We have to attend the feasts that we're required to attend. We have to make the sacrifices that we're called to sacrifice. Do these things and we can be considered a righteous individual, at least in terms of outward conformance 
to the law and have a right to be in God's house, be considered part of his household. For us, it's quite different. After the cross, the equation changes. To be in a right relationship with God means that we must repent. We must believe in Christ Jesus, the once for all sacrifice who obeyed the law for us and died to pay for our sins and rose from death to give us life and has gone ahead of us into God's presence to prepare a place for us to live with him. Blessed are those who dwell in the house of God. To those who understand how good God is and how wonderful he is, their desire to be with God is almost insatiable. And that's what's expressed in verse 2. My soul longs, my soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. That insatiable desire to be with God is part of the blessing of those who dwell in the household of God. Well, then there's the second blessing in the psalm, in verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion, the heart, again, the, the desire to be with God and to travel on the pathway to get there, whatever it might be. It's essential for life. It's essential for dwelling with God, to be right with God. Otherwise, you get his judgment and wrath. But it's also essential for life as a member of God's household to realize, and this is one of the purposes of the law, that we cannot live the way God wants us to live by our own strength. We're fallible human beings. We're fallen. We're tempted. We sin. We stray from the right path. Our minds and our hearts are easily distracted. So we need strength that comes only from God to live the way that he calls us to live, to gain victory over enemies, just as Israel had to rely on God to fight their battles for him. David is an example of this. Shall I go up and fight, he inquires of the Lord, and, and wants to know, will the Lord go with him? Will the Lord defeat the enemies? When battle is won, victory is ascribed to the Lord. It's a temptation instead to trust in ourselves. That's part of Saul's downfall as a king, as, as we've read in the last weeks. To get good things by our own good effort, our own plans, our own strategies, our own efforts, our own strength. Or even as we looked at, uh, what was it, last week or the week before, by our own cleverness, our own ability. But those who know God trust God and are willing to let him lead and direct their steps to show us the way. May take us, God may take us to places we wouldn't have chosen to go ourselves. We may go through the valley of Baca, but he will lead us where we need to go and protect us as we go and bless us in all these things. So the Christian life has to be a life of trusting God and relying on his strength in all things and at all times. Well summed up in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. God's people embrace this truth and embrace it willingly. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. They go from strength to strength. 
The God of hosts hears their prayer and directs and leads their steps. And then there's the blessing in verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Both to live in God's house and to live a blessed life require trusting in God. If we're going to let him be our strength, we have to trust in him. Again, he'll take us through those valleys, as we see in verse 6. Protect us from our enemies. Give us victory over them. See references to this in verses 7 and 9 and 11. But trust that through all these things, he will still show us his favor. The God of his people bestows favor and honor. Not a good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly, says the psalm in verse 11. Again, those who know God trust him and are willing to to let him lead and direct their paths. So these three blessings, to dwell in God's house, to be in a really to be in a right relationship with him, to trust in him and his strength, and to live a life of of complete and utter trust in God. The people of God embrace these things, again, willingly and eagerly. Well, those are the blessings, but what I really want to get to this morning is this idea of, of Psalm 84 as a work song, as a song celebrating work. So we look at it from, I think, the point of view of of the sons of Korah, or a son of Korah, whoever wrote this psalm. The point of view of someone who's a gatekeeper, a guardian, in the temple of the Lord God. We learn about the sons of Korah in 1 Chronicles 26. In those latter chapters of 1 Chronicles, David is organizing things. He's nearing the end of his life. God has told him, that uh, he doesn't get to build the temple, Solomon's going to build it instead. Um, But David's planning everything out. He's planning out people. He's organizing people into groups and teams and giving people assignments, and you do this. And he's putting out the plans and foundations and buying up supplies that will go into the temple. And in 1 Chronicles 26, we find him organizing the sons of Korah. The Korahites were a clan. They were part of the tribe of Levi. The tribe, remember, that was called by God to serve him at the tabernacle, at the temple, and to meet the the general spiritual needs of the people of Israel. And we find in 1 Chronicles 26 that the Korahites were a very large clan. They had multiplied and been fruitful. We're told in verse 8 of chapter 26 of 1 Chronicles, that they were able men, and they were strong men. So to them is given the job of guarding the temple, guarding all the gates of the temple complex, north, south, east, and west, divided up into various divisions and given different shifts for different watches of the day and night, surrounding the temple. Their job is to guard it, to keep the area safe, to protect it. And that makes sense if we just think about it from a practical standpoint. We know that there are evil people in the world. And what would evil people do? They'd want to steal the gold and silver and wonderful implements in the temple. Or maybe just cause mischief and havoc. Bring innocent people into some uh, conflict. Uh, Even yesterday in the news we heard about 
uh, random shootings in, in a public place. Wicked people do wicked things in public places. And so the sons of Korah are organized to be the protective force that watches over the temple and keeps it safe and guards it. These strong and able men not only did that job, but they wrote psalms. Thirteen of them are preserved for us in Scripture. Almost a tenth of our psalms were written by the sons of Korah. And judging by this psalm, they loved their job. They loved what they did. And I think of people in the military or people in, in uh, police forces or, or county sheriffs or that kind of thing. Really, if they're good people, they love what they do. They love protecting people. They love keeping things safe and watching over the public. These sons of Korah love what they do. So much so that they can say that they'd rather be a doorkeeper, a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Think about that attitude that they have. It gives us an opportunity, I think, to, to ponder our own calling in life, our own vocation, the talents and gifts that God has given to us and how we use them. Do you love your calling? I'm not asking if you love your job. Do you love your calling? Do you love the calling that God has placed upon your life or your callings? Now we can often get very frustrated and even complain to one another about where we are in life, the responsibilities we have, the jobs and duties. Think about even in our small congregation here, the changing jobs and the changing job situations and and, and how companies come and companies go and leaders come and leaders go. Think about the changing circumstances of, of relationships that we have with other people. But here are the Korahites. They have one job. Their job is to guard the temple. And it's the only job available to them. If you're a little boy born into the, the clan of the Korahites, you don't get to go do something else. You're born to guard the temple. No options. No choices. And yet, nevertheless, the psalm that we have before us expresses the joy, the utter joy that they have in that called occupation. They sing. And the song they sing while they do their work and they can do their work with joy. And so there is a lesson for us in that. The circumstances can be very difficult, and, and I can look around the room, and I can look at my own situation and, and say that times can be incredibly tough and frustrating and stressful. But can we find joy where God has called us to be right now? And I think we all can. If for no other reason than God put me there. And if God put me there, he put me there for a reason. And I can be joyful and thankful in that fact and in that fact alone. There's that saying you hear from time to time, blossom where you are planted, bloom where you are planted. And that's not bad advice. If we understand that it's God who put us there and calls us to the various roles and relationships, the callings that we have, then we can blossom in those circumstances and have joy. 
Look at how the joy is expressed in this psalm. Verse 1, God's dwelling place is lovely. It's a great place to be. It's a great place to work. Not because it's architecturally beauty, beautiful, not because of the gold and silver. Those are certainly wonderful. But all of that is just a reflection of the God that they are meant to glorify. God's house is beautiful simply because that's where God is. God is there, and so that makes it beautiful in and of itself. And then verse 2 that we've talked about, My soul longs, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh, sing for joy to the living God. This is a whole body, a whole person expression of, of joy and praise. To be a, a guardian of that house is something that their soul faints for. They, they desire it. They want it eagerly. Their heart, their flesh cries out singing to God. We've got this verse 3 about swallows and sparrows. Many questions in the commentaries about this. Is it an allegory? Is it an analogy? Is it some sort of metaphor? I think it's a real simple thing. There's a whole bunch of Korahites. There's only so many people who can serve at the temple at a given time. And they may need to wait a long time before their next chance to serve comes around. And I can see a a Korahite waiting for his turn, looking up at the temple and saying, man, even sparrows get to be there all day long. I'm being kind of jealous. But also looking on it with wonder. Sparrows and swallows are making their nests in God's temple. We're familiar with that, with the swallows when they return to Capistrano. Even the sparrows get to be there. Even they find a home. Even they find safety. Four and five are the blessings. We talked about those. And six or seven, the affirmation that those traveling to God's house to Zion do so in safety and security. We're not entirely sure what Baca means in the Valley of Baca. It could be weeping, the Valley of Weeping. It could be the Valley of Balsam Trees. Probably the former, uh, because the, the contrast here that's, that's provided, the Valley of Baca becomes a place of springs and pools instead of, of weeping. And I think the, the water image goes with tears. And in verse 7, the, those who travel to, to God's house to appear before God in Zion, go from strength to strength. It's just a, a way of saying they get stronger as they go. And as we walk with God, isn't that true of us? That we mature in our faith and we become stronger in our faith, wiser and more mature. We go from strength to strength. And then in verses 8 and 9, God hears His people's prayers. He protects them like a shield. He looks on them with favor. In the well-known verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Again, I think another reference to a, a son of Korah having to wait maybe a long time before his turn comes to serve in the temple. We know this is true. We think of Zechariah, for example, in, in Luke 1, chosen at, by Lot to finally have his turn to go into the temple and serve before the Lord. Something that happened very rarely. We know this from 
extra-biblical sources, something that happened very rarely in the life of a priest if it happened once. Maybe the same is true for the sons of Korah. If I can get just that one day to serve in your temple, to guard the temple of the Lord, that's better than a thousand days anywhere else. It helps us understand a little bit of that longing that they might have. That day when it comes is better than a thousand other days in a thousand other places. And I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, if we forget what doorkeeper means as a, as a guardian or a gatekeeper, it's easy to look on this uh, statement as, as kind of a, well, putting down the job of, of doorkeeper, as if it's some lowly thing. That's not what's meant here. I've seen some say, well, this is a janitor's song. They're just janitors. That's not what a doorkeeper is. A doorkeeper in the temple of the Lord is a guardian, a, a security guard, if you will. Better than any other job in any place of sin. There's pure satisfaction here for the writer of this psalm, for the job to which he is called. He's happy. He's joyful. He's thankful for the calling that God has placed upon his life. And he sees, therefore, in verses 11 and 12, he sees favor and honor and good things coming from God and blessing for all who trust in him. So again, is this how you feel about, is this how you react to the callings that God has placed upon your life? We all have multiple callings. We tend, I think, too often to think of calling as our job, our, our employment, and that may or may not be true, or at least it's not the whole truth, because we have many callings in life. If you're married, you're called to be a husband or a wife. And in that calling, do you find joy in it and thank God and thank Him for giving you a wife or a husband and enjoy serving Him, serving God as a wife or a husband? Some of us are called to be parents. Do we find joy in that calling that God has given to us? Some are students. That's also a calling from God to learn, to study, to mature? Do you find joy in serving God in that way? Whatever the calling is, it's, it's our job to strive to do it well, to do it toward the best of our ability, with God's help, with God's strength, so that we honor and glorify Him in all things through our diligent and honest work. But there's another aspect of this. The, the, the Korahites, the sons of Korah, are called to serve in the temple. And all of us have callings in God's house as well. Think of some of the things that, that we do even in this little church. Some it's hospitality, welcoming others to church, inviting them into our homes, greeting people when they arrive, handing out bulletins, helping people get settled in. For some, their calling is to bring food that we can enjoy together at lunch and enjoying that fellowship. Some clean up afterwards. Some clean up the church. Some do dishes. Some take out the trash. That's a calling. Some put out signs and bring them back in. Some just sit here and sing with joy and help others join in with that singing. Some are good at helping manage the finances of the church or helping and serving others with good financial advice and assistance. 
Some of you are called to works of mercy and of love. Some to be generous in support of those in need, supporting the church and its work. For some of you, your calling is prayer, intercession for others. You have the gift of doing that, a heart for interceding for others. Some are called to, to teach, to admonish, to disciple, to mentor, to give spiritual guidance and wisdom to others. To what calling in his church has God called you? Some are gatekeepers. Some clean dishes. It doesn't matter. If it's the calling that God has given you, better is one day doing that <laughs> than a thousand doing something else. Do we work at that call with diligence and strive to do it with excellence? And do you have that longing to do it? I think we do. If you really have that calling, there will be an insatiable desire to do that, <clears throat> to serve God and to serve his people. And so we can sing a little work song of joy and make this psalm as much yours as it was the sons of Korah. Do you know your calling at God's house? We all have one. And then one other thought to close out the psalm. All of this focuses on God's house as an earthly dwelling. But we know that God does not dwell on earth. The temple was just a shadow of a greater reality. And that temple is gone. Never to come back. There's a new temple being built. The church made of living stones, God's people. But God's dwelling is in heaven. As I mentioned before, our Savior has gone before us to prepare a place for us to dwell there with Him. There's a calling that each and every one of us has to that eternal place. Do you long for it? Do you have a passion for it? Does your heart yearn for it? Does your soul faint for it? Do you long to be with God forever? Would you rather be there than involved in the sins of this world and its rebellious activities? And here's the thought. Do you look forward to the work that God has for you to do in eternity? I don't like descriptions of heaven that put us in flimsy white robes with wings playing golden harps. Go back to Genesis 2. God planted a garden in the east, a special place, a reflection of his dwelling place on a mountain and put man there to work. When that new heavens, when that new earth is restored, I think we're going to have work to do. And I think it's going to be fun. And I'm looking forward to it. Don't know what it'll be, but I think we're going to have things to do. And we will find joy in that work, like the sons of Korah found in theirs. In the meantime, there's work to do now, service we give now, hopefully joyfully and with thanks to God, singing songs of joy as we work in preparation for that eternal work to come. Again, the only way to enter into that eternity with God, to dwell with Him for that eternal day, is through repentance and faith in Christ.
It's there that we will ever sing God's praises. It's in, in Him that we live and move and have our being in His strength. It's in and with Him that we find true blessing, trusting in Him. This world is full of, of sorrow. It seems like we wait a thousand days to be with God. <clears throat> and while we wait, I think we do yearn for eternity. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says it very clearly. God has put a yearning for eternity in our hearts. Can you say with the sons of Korah, my soul longs, even faints, for eternity with God. I hope so. And may that eternal day come, and may it come quickly. For that day, when it comes, is better than a thousand, thousand, thousand here on this earth. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, our God, in fact, our desire <coughs> is to dwell with you. We've been bouncing around this theme for several weeks now. We ask that you would continue to create that desire in our hearts <coughs> to be with you, to see your beauty, <coughs> and to learn you, to study you, to know you more and more and more deeply and more thoroughly, so that we may enjoy you, serve you, and give you glory now and forevermore. We do look forward to that day that is coming. And again, may it come quickly when Christ returns, when we all sit before his judgment and are found worthy to enter in, <clears throat> not because of anything that we have done, but simply because we have acknowledged the sinfulness of our sin and in repentance turned in faith to Christ Jesus, trusting in him, trusting in his work on our behalf. We look forward to whatever it is you have for us in eternity. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth when this world is remade the way it was intended to be. Lord God, again, may that day come quickly. Bless us and watch over us. You are our strength, and indeed we put all of our trust in you. We ask all of this in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen.